We're in chapter 26. Chapter 26 of the Confession, and we are on paragraphs 9 and 10. 9 and 10 is where we'll be at today. So let's open up with a word of prayer, and then we'll begin our Bible study. Father, we are grateful again to be together this afternoon, and Lord, we're grateful uh, every time that we are together to be able to open your word, and Lord, to be able to know and understand your mind, Lord, what is your will, your wisdom, Lord, that you have deposited for us uh, in your perfect word. And so, Lord, we pray that today you would help us and teach us, Lord, concerning the nature of the church, Lord, how it is that we are to uh, call those who are uh, to be elders and deacons, and Lord, how it is that we should maintain the ministry uh, in our own day, Lord, for our own souls, for our sake, Lord, for the benefit of this world, Lord, so that the gospel may go forth in power. Uh, So, Lord, we pray that you would teach us again today, and Lord, help us to understand your word, and it is in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Okay, chapter 26, and we'll do paragraphs 9 and 10. And paragraph 9, you know, occasionally we'll come across a a point or something that said that doesn't really make sense. And uh, this is one of those that I don't necessarily agree with what they're saying. And then the passage they quote to support it doesn't support it at all. So that's why, again, as we've said, the confession, the catechism, whatever it is that we're using is simply a platform to go to the Bible. But ultimately, everything must be tested by Scripture, including the confession. So if they make an assertion, and then they provide scriptural evidence, and we read the Scripture, and what they say is indeed an accurate portrayal representation of what the Scriptures teach, then that's good and beneficial. And 99% of the time, as we've gone through that, this has exactly been the case. But occasionally, here and there, there are a few points where Either it's not clear or it's like, what are, they, what are they talking about here? And that's here in chapter 26, paragraph 9. And then next time in paragraph 11, there's, there's another one as well. So anyway, okay, so we'll read it and then we'll deal with those things. It says, Christ has appointed the way to call someone prepared and gifted by the Holy Spirit to the office of overseer or elder in the church. He must be chosen by the collective vote of the church itself. He must then be solemnly set apart by fasting and prayer. The body of elders of the church must lay hands on him if there are any already in place. A deacon must be chosen by the same kind of vote and set apart by prayer and laying on of hands as well. So here, the point that I I don't think they make a, a good argument for, and I don't believe the passage they provide actually supports what it is that they're teaching, is that the way someone is called to be an overseer or a deacon is through the collective vote of the church itself, all right? meaning that uh, the church simply nominates or votes, elects someone to the position of elder or deacon. And I think the biblical way that it should be done is that it's done through the elders itself. The elders are the ones who have been given this task of nominating or bringing forward 
more elders or appointing more elders and more deacons, and that that authority resides within the body of elders, not within the congregation as a whole, right? Not that the congregation, each single person gets a vote, and then if there's enough votes, then the person is installed as an elder, or that you just, everyone submit names, and whoever gets the most names, that's who will nominate and elect to the position of elder or to the position of deacon, and this is commonly as it's done in many churches. it's, it's all done through the congregation, congregational government, congregational rule, congregational uh, form of administering these various types of things. But does the Bible actually teach that? Does the Bible teach that the way an elder is established in the church is by a vote of the congregation, that they vote on these things and what the, they say is what ends up going? And they use here Acts chapter 14, verses 19 to 23 as the basis to prove this point. But when we go to that passage, that's not what they're doing at all. They're actually, the apostle Paul is appointing elders. He's appointing elders, not through a vote of the church. So Acts chapter 14, Acts chapter 14. And we'll pick up in verse 19. It says there, But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having won over the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing him to be dead. But while the disciples stood around him, he got up and entered the city. The next day he went away with Barnabas to Derbe. After they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church, having prayed with fasting, they commended them to the Lord in whom they had believed. So there, here, we have the apostle appointing elders in these churches. They're going there, they're preaching the gospel There are disciples that are being made. They're strengthening them. They're encouraging them to continue in the faith. They're telling them about the necessity and the reality of sufferings and persecutions and that they shouldn't think that this is odd because it's through many tribulations that you must enter the kingdom of God. But then it says, when they had appointed elders for them in every church. So it's not saying when they, the church, appointed elders for themselves, but who is the one appointing the elders here? Right? It's not the church necessarily, but it's the apostle. The apostle Paul and Barnabas, they are the ones appointing elders for them in every church. They prayed with fasting. They commend them to the Lord in whom they had believed. So in this case, the passage isn't saying that the elders were chosen or selected by a collective vote of the church itself, but rather the elders were appointed under the authority of the apostle. The apostle Paul is the one who did these things. Now, this does not mean, of course, that the elders don't consult, don't talk to the people, aren't getting uh, uh, ideas and uh, wisdom and understanding from the people, right? So it shouldn't be that way, and it shouldn't be that way in anything, right? Whenever decisions are being made, people should be talking about these things 
openly, right, honestly, it should be done in the open, not behind closed doors, not by dictate, right, not by fiat, where the elders are saying, this is what we're going to do, and no one knows anything about it, and our, our will goes, and no one else has any say on anything. Of course, that's not what they're teaching. However, in terms of the church, and in terms of the authority in the church, ultimately, the final decision resides with who? It's with the elders. So ultimately, whenever an elder is being appointed, then it's done by the body of elders. Now, again, this doesn't mean that they're not talking to the church, that there's not input from other people, because if someone in the church knows something about this person that is pertinent information, then they need to be talking to the elders so that they have a full understanding and a full view of these things. This happened with us one time. There was a man that we were considering to possibly make a deacon. There were things about him that I didn't know that someone else did know. And because it was pertinent for me to know, that person came and told me those things because it was something that would disqualify him from serving in that capacity. And so it was information that I needed to know, and therefore he was no longer under consideration. So there are things that need to be known, but ultimately here, it's not the church selecting and choosing their own elders, but rather it is the apostle who is doing it. He is appointing them over them, right? Doing this for them. And I think in the terms of the day in and day out of the church, then it should be the body of elders who are doing those things. And if it's a church that doesn't have elders, then there needs to be some authority, right? If it's a church plant or whatever, then there needs to be some authority over them who is able to help them and do those things, right? To do those things because it must be done very seriously in a very solemn way. And in the church, not all of the members are going to be in a, at a place of maturity, there are some, we want everyone to be mature, but if someone's a new believer, then they may not know up from down, right? They don't know what to think about. They don't know, and they don't have the right understanding on some things, right? And it may be that they just like this person. He's good looking, so let's make him an elder, right? Or, or he's got a really uh, good personality, and I like talking to him, so we'll, well, it shouldn't be that way. There needs to be seriousness. It needs to be done biblically with the right way, and this is why the elders are the ones that are given this task of appointing other elders within the church and also appointing the deacons, right, the deacons. So the elders are the ones that have the authority vested in them over the church by Christ, and then they are the ones who are to be making the decisions in the life of the church. Again, not that they don't consult other people. Of course, they should consult other people. But ultimately, just as it is in the home, like we've been talking about with the man and the woman, at the end of the day, the decision lies with who? It's the man's decision. Now, that doesn't mean he doesn't talk to his wife. It doesn't mean that he doesn't consult her, that he doesn't seek her advice or her counsel. But at the end of the day, he's the one that has to make the decision, and he's the one that's going to be held accountable. And this is as it is in the church as well. Now, again, for many of us, this is contrary to our church experience because most of the churches, at least in the Baptist churches, I don't know about Pentecostal churches or whatever other backgrounds, are congregational rule, meaning the congregation has the final say in everything. Uh, but that's where, where in the Bible is that taught? Where does the Bible teach congregational rule where everything is submitted to the church for a vote and then whatever the church says is what goes? So I don't see that taught in the Bible anywhere. And so we shouldn't be practicing that if it's not found in the Bible. And here... The passage they use to promote the collective vote of the church 
doesn't say anything about voting. It says that the apostle appointed elders for them. So it doesn't support their cause at all. And that's why I don't think that's a good statement. And they should remove it from the confession. Okay, now the next one, he must then be solemnly set apart by fasting and prayer. The body of elders of the church must lay hands on him if there are any already in place. Now this, yes, we should do this. 1 Timothy chapter 4. When someone is set aside to serve as an elder in a church, then it is a very noble and important task, one that must be undertook with great seriousness, and there should be some kind of a public recognition of what is taking place where there is the laying on of hands and setting him apart with prayer and fasting. 1 Timothy 4, verse 11 says, Prescribe and teach these things. Let no one look down on your youthfulness, but rather in speech, conduct, love, faith, and purity, show yourself an example of those who believe. Until I come, give attention to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation and teaching. Do not neglect the spiritual gift within you, which was bestowed on you through prophetic utterance with the laying on of hands by the presbytery. Take pains with these things, be absorbed in them, so that your progress will be evident to all. Pay close attention to yourself and your teaching. Persevere in these things, for as you do this, you will ensure salvation both for yourself and for those who hear you. So there, Timothy, he's telling Timothy not to neglect the spiritual gift within you, right? The spiritual gift, and what is this gift that he has within him? It's the gift of teaching, the gift of teaching and exhorting people in the scriptures. That's what he is not to neglect, because that's what he's talking about here in this passage, to give yourself to the teaching of the Bible. So don't neglect this, and it was bestowed on you by prophetic utterance with the laying on of hands. So they laid their hands on him, and they commissioned him for this work. And in the same way, Whenever someone is called, set apart to serve as an elder in the church, then they should be set apart in this way, with the laying on of hands, right, with prayer and fasting, with them being commissioned to this great work. And then lastly, a deacon must be chosen by the same kind of vote. Again, I don't agree with that. They must be chosen in the same way, which is through the appointment of the elders and set apart by prayer and laying on of hands as well. Acts chapter 6. Acts chapter 6. And we'll read verses 1 to 6. It says, Now at this time, while the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint arose on the part of the Hellenistic Jews against the native Hebrews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily serving of food. So here we have a controversy that has arisen in the early days here. There's a complaint because the Hellenistic Jews, right, that meaning Jews who were not from Israel, who lived in other parts of the world, but now had come back to Jerusalem and had remained there and are meeting with the disciples. Okay, so they're Hellenistic in that they are from Greek-speaking areas 
and they have a complaint against the native Hebrews, those that live in this area, because the widows, the Hellenistic widows, were being overlooked in the daily serving of food. Now, is this a legitimate complaint? And yes, obviously it's legitimate because of the way they handled it. If it wasn't legitimate, they'd tell them, be quiet, quit complaining. But they do rectify and they do recognize this is a legitimate complaint. The widow shouldn't be neglected. But here they're being neglected, and I don't think it's, they're doing it maliciously. They're, it's just it's happening because the people don't know who they are. They don't know who they are because they're not from this area, and whoever is distributing the food doesn't know who these Hellenistic Jews are. So here we have a problem, and it needs to be dealt with, right? But here, we're not talking about an issue of preaching and teaching. We're not talking about an issue of church discipline. We're not talking about an issue of prayer that needs to be attended to. It has to do with serving food, right? Meeting daily needs of the people. And should the apostles give themselves to these types of tasks? Because if they do, it's going to take them away from preaching and teaching and doing what God has called them to do. So what is the solution? So the twelve summoned the congregation of the disciples and said, it is not desirable for us to neglect the word of God in order to serve tables, right? They call the congregation and they tell them it's not desirable, neither for us nor for you, for us to neglect preaching in order to wait on tables, And is this waiting on tables just a mundane, useless waiting of tables? No, this is a very important thing, right? Because this is religion that is pure and undefiled before God, according to James. To visit widows and orphans in their affliction. These are widows in affliction. So this isn't, they're not saying that it's an unimportant task, but is feeding widows as important as preaching the gospel? No, it's not. And that's what they need to be doing. So it would be better if there were other people, trustworthy men, who were set over this task. And that's what they do. So they say, therefore, brethren, select from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the spirit of wisdom, whom we may put in charge of this task. Now notice here, someone might say, no, look, it is done by the church, by the collective vote. Well, I think the reason they're saying select for yourselves seven men of good reputation is because we're dealing with a very large body of people and they don't know everybody. So they need input from the church, from the congregation. Who are the trustworthy men? Who are the trustworthy men among yourselves that we can set over this task and so that it won't be neglected? But ultimately, who is the one that's going to put them in charge of this task? They say, we may do it, right? So it's going through the proper channels, the proper procedures. Yes, you select these men. You tell us from among yourselves who are the trustworthy men. Then after we have examined them, then if we find that this is indeed true, then we, the apostles, will appoint them to this task. Then verse 4, but we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. The statement found approval with the whole congregation, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenius, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. And these they brought before the apostles, and after praying, they laid their hands on them. So ultimately, the authority lies with the apostles, 
right? Not with the church. They used the church, they used the congregation because they needed help, they needed their input and advice, but ultimately it was the apostles who laid their hands on them and appointed them to this task. Now, another issue that is a side issue here, but some would say that there is some debate as to whether or not these are even deacons, right? Because people will say, well, this is when deacons were first established. But here, they're not called deacons, though what they're doing is deacon-like in its service. But here, you're dealing with a peculiar, a unique situation, and they're resolving that situation. So it never actually says that they appointed them to be deacons. They appointed them to deal with this issue at hand and to make sure that the women were not to be neglected, though it is true that what they are doing is likened unto a deacon ministry. So whether they were deacons or whether they were just given this one task, this special task for a moment, right, doesn't really matter. What really matters is the way that they were chosen and how they were set apart for this task. Okay, another passage to consider is Titus chapter 1. Because someone might say, well, yes, the apostles, they had the authority to establish elders, but now that there's no apostles, it needs to be done by the church or by the congregation, through the congregational vote. But if we go to Titus chapter 1, verse 5, we'll notice that Titus, who is not an apostle, was given the task of appointing elders in every city as the apostle directed him. Titus chapter 1, verse 5 says, For this reason I left you in Crete, that you would set in order what remains and appoint elders in every city as I directed you. Namely, if any man is above reproach, the husband of one wife, having children who believe, not accused of dissipation or rebellion. For the overseer must be above reproach as God's steward, not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not addicted to wine, not pugnacious, not fond of sordid game, but hospitable, loving what is good, sensible, just, devout, self-controlled, holding fast to the faithful word, which is in accordance with the teaching, so that he will be able to exhort and sound doctrine and refute those who contradict it. So there... Titus is instructed by Paul, the apostle, to appoint elders in every city as I directed you. So it wasn't something that the churches were taking upon themselves, but that Titus was the one appointing the elders. Then after the elders are established in the cities, then they have the structure that is there necessary for the government of the church to be, uh, to be worked out on a weekly and a daily basis, right? So that it can be perpetuated from generation to generation. Okay, uh, paragraph 10. It says, The work of pastors is to give constant attention to the service of Christ in his churches in the ministry of the word and prayer. They are to watch over the souls of church members as those who must give an account to Christ. The churches to whom they minister must not only give them all due respect, but also must share with them from all their good things according to their ability. They must do this so their pastors may have a comfortable living without having to be entangled in secular matters, and so they can show hospitality to others. This is required by the law of nature and by the explicit command of our Lord Jesus, who has ordained that those who preach the gospel should earn their living by the gospel. So here, in terms of the pastor 
and then the church, right? He's talking about the obligation of the pastor to the church, and then the obligation of the church to the pastor, right? So it's a two-way street. It's a reciprocal relationship. What is the responsibility of the pastor in relationship to Christ and in relationship to the church? Well, they say to give constant attention to the ministry of the word and to prayer. That's what we read earlier from Acts chapter 6, that the apostle says we should not neglect the preaching of the word and prayer in order to wait on tables. So this is the duty of the pastor, right? He's not to be uh, a CEO, right? He's not to be the groundskeeper, right? He's not to be someone who is a psychiatrist or a psychologist. He's not a party planner, right? He's not to be any of these things. What is the one task that is given to the elder, which we talked about this when we read the qualifications between the elders and the deacons? The qualifications are identical in terms of their character, in terms of their virtue. What is the only difference? The elder is able to teach. He has to have the ability to teach because that's what God has called him to do. He is supposed to teach. Teach the word of God. That is what he is supposed to do. He should give constant attention to the ministry of the word and to prayer. Praying for the church praying for the souls of those who have been entrusted to him. They are to watch over the souls of the church members as those, as those who must give an account. This is how important it is. They are going to give an account, the pastors. I will give an account for your soul on the day of judgment. And if I neglected to teach you what you needed for godliness, for salvation for life and godliness, then God will require it of me. If I teach you those things and you don't listen, then God will require it of you. But if I fail to teach you, then your blood will be required of me. And that's the way the minister has to look at it. That's why we have to teach the whole counsel of God, even if people don't like it. We just have to teach it because God is going to judge us and he's going to hold us accountable. Not many of you should be teachers, my brothers, knowing that we who teach right, will be held to a higher standard, it says in James chapter 3. Not many should be teachers because those who teach are going to be held to a very high standard of judgment. So the ministry of the word is a great privilege, right? The one who desire it, desires it desires an honorable task, but it is also a great responsibility and it must be done with the utmost seriousness. So that is the case for me toward the church. This is also true of the husbands in the home because the man in the home is the high priest of the home. He is the pastor, the minister over his family and his wife and children will be held, he'll be held responsible for them and for how he taught them. So this is what needs to happen. They should give themselves to the ministry of the word and to prayer. We just read that from Acts chapter 6 verse 4. Now turn to Hebrews chapter 13. Hebrews chapter 13. And we'll read verses 7 and then also 17. Hebrews 13 verse 7. It says, Remember those who led you, who spoke the word of God to you, 
and consider the result of their conduct, imitate their faith. So there, remember, he says, those who led you, those who spoke the word of God to you, right? Look at the result of their conduct. Look at the way that they live their life because the minister should be living a godly life and he says, imitate their faith. Then also verse 17 says, obey your leaders and submit to them for they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with grief for this would be unprofitable for you. So there, he says, obey your leaders. Obey them. So obedience is required and submission, right? Obedience and submission because they're keeping watch over your soul as those who will give an account, right? If they're teaching the Bible faithfully in a trustworthy way, they're doing so in the fear of the Lord. They're doing so because they know that they're going to give an account for the souls that are under their care. And if this is happening, then the congregation should not resist what it, what it is that they're commanding them to do. But rather, they should submit to that because they know they're not doing it because they're tyrants. They're not doing it because they want everyone to do what they say. They're doing it because they're giving an account of their souls. And they should do it with joy and not with grief. If the people are constantly kicking against the goads, if the people are constantly revolting, resisting, right, seeking to overthrow, being negative, having a sour attitude toward the preaching of the word of God, then is that going to bring joy or grief to the minister? Well, what about in the home? What about a parent that every time they tell their child to do something, the child talks back? Is that going to bring joy or grief in the home? It's going to bring grief. Well, it's the same in the church. Right, So we don't want the minister, the leader, to be exercising his ministry with grief, but rather with joy. And when does joy come? When there's compliance, when there's obedience to the word of God, just as it is in the home. And ultimately, who is it not beneficial for? For no one. It's not going to be profitable for him or for the people. Right? It's unprofitable for everyone. A good example of this would be Moses, Moses the prophet. Did they obey him with joy or did they give him much grief? Constant grief, constant grief. And was it profitable for them? No, they all died in the wilderness and then they went to hell. And it's the same way in the churches today. So if the ministers are expecting teaching the word of God, then the people should comply. They should obey with joy, with happiness, and that's going to be good and beneficial for everybody. Okay, then next. I don't like it when these paragraphs are split in half. <clears throat> okay, the churches. Now the church's responsibility. The churches to whom they minister must not only give them all due respect, but also must share with them from all their good things according to their ability. 1 Timothy chapter 5. First Timothy five, verse seventeen. First Timothy five seventeen says the elders who rule well are to be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. 
Now, I know that word is abrasive to many people. They don't like it. But he does say it, right? He does say the word rule. The elder who rules well. So the elders are ruling over the church, right? Because God has invested them with that authority. Just as the king is the one ruling over the kingdom, so the elders are the ones that are ruling over the church, and the husband is the one who is ruling over the house, right? This is the way that God has established it, okay? I remember I had somebody tell me one time, he said, no, it's lead. I said, no, it says rule. Anyway, he didn't like it. He didn't like the word, but that's what it says, right? If you don't like it, take it up with the apostle and take it up with the spirit of Christ. Who inspired him to write it? Okay, so the elder who rules well is to be considered worthy of double honor. And what does it mean for an elder to rule well? Under the submission to Christ, right? If what he's expecting is consistent with the word of God, if he proves everything with the word of God, then nobody should have a problem with it, right? Because all of us are ultimately servants of who? Slaves of Christ. So if what he is teaching, right, the elder is just an under-shepherd. He's just an intermediary between the congregation and Christ. He's simply proclaiming to them, this is what Christ is telling you. So if what he's teaching is proven with Scripture, then it should be no problem for the people, especially for the sheep of Christ. Because my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. They always follow him. So he should be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, You shall not muzzle the ox while he is threshing, and the laborer is worthy of his wages. So here, the double honor is, you should give him respect, the honor that is due to the position, but also the honor of supplying his material needs. right? Paying him according to what he's doing, because an ox is not to be muzzled when it's threshing out the grain. And a laborer is worthy of his wages. Who expects to go to work and not get paid? Right. Right? Even an ox that's working, threshing out the grain, God expected the ox to get something for his work. Right? And though it's true that many ministers may be as dumb as an ox, right? they are still an ox, and they still deserve to get something for the work, for the labor that they are doing. Do not receive an accusation against an elder, except on the basis of two or three witnesses. Those who continue in sin rebuke in the presence of all, so that the rest also will be fearful of sinning. I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of his chosen angels to maintain these principles without bias, doing nothing in a spirit of partiality. Do not lay hands upon anyone too hastily and thereby share responsibility for the sins of others. Keep yourself free from sin. So it should be honor, respect, and any accusation is as a last basis. A last basis, and it has to be credible with two or three witnesses. Not, well, I think this, or I think that, or we ought to do this, we ought to do that. We shouldn't be doing those types of things. right? If there's something legitimate that can be proven with Scripture and there is ample evidence for it, two or three witnesses, okay, yes, then it needs to be addressed and it needs to be brought up. But if there is nothing, then people should just get along, be happy, don't be cantankerous, don't be malcontent, right? Don't do those kinds of things. Okay, Galatians chapter 6. 
I tell you, I really like this paragraph right here. It's one of my favorites. <laughs> I'm just kidding. <clears throat> Galatians chapter 6. And we'll read verses 6 through 10. Galatians chapter 6, verse 6. says, The one who is taught the word is to share all good things with the one who teaches him. Do not be deceived, God is not mocked, for whatever a man sows, this he will also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption, but the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. Let us not lose heart in doing good, for in due time we will reap if we do not grow weary. So then, while we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. So there, again, the one who is taught the word is to share all good things with the one who teaches him. Right? This is the principle that is laid out. If you receive something from the teaching of the word, then you should give something back. Right? There should be a reciprocating relationship. We shouldn't be spiritual leeches where we receive, but we don't give anything back. If we receive a spiritual benefit from the teaching, then the way that we show our gratefulness for that is by giving a material benefit, a material blessing, in response to that spiritual blessing. And then he says, don't be deceived, God is not mocked. Whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. If you are miserly, miserly, if you are stingy, if you have no appreciation for the word of God, Right? And this is why people won't contribute and they won't give to the ministry of the word because they don't appreciate the word of God. Right? We will pay money for what we appreciate. Does anyone go to the mechanic and expect him to work for free? No, and people will pay exorbitant fees right, to go to the mechanic because they all need their car. They value their car, they want their car. What about the doctor? Right? Which is a scam. But anyway, what about the doctors? People go to the doctor and they pay out the, out the nose to go to the doctor. And they do it because they value their health. They want good health and they know that's where they have to go. And they'll do those things. Well, if we value the word of Christ, if we value salvation, if we value sanctification, then how is this going to happen? How is the ministry going to be sustained how is the minister going to be devoted to the teaching and preaching of the word and to prayer if he's in the factory all day long? If he's having to sell mattresses all the time, or he's doing this or that, or all, all of these separate kinds of occupations and businesses. No, it can't happen. So there needs to be the supporting of the ministry. And if we sow sparingly, we're going to reap sparingly, but if we sow generously, we'll reap generously. And the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. It's the flesh that tells us, no, nah, it's not that big of a deal. You can get any buffoon up here and let him say a few words, and, and that's all that we need. But somebody who's taking the word of God seriously and sees that his salvation, his eternal destiny, and that of his wife and children, is dependent upon the preaching of the word of God, then he will do what is necessary to support that. And from the Spirit, then he will reap eternal life. So we shouldn't lose heart in doing good. But as we have the occasion, we should do good to all, especially those of the household of faith. Okay, next. It says, 
they must do this so their pastors may have a comfortable living without having to be entangled in secular matters, and so they can show hospitality to others. Here, the church should support the pastors, the ministers, so that they can have a comfortable living. Now, by comfortable living, they don't mean living an opulent lifestyle. They don't mean living a rich lifestyle. Nobody should become a millionaire, a millionaire, a billionaire, through the ministry, through teaching the Bible, through selling and peddling books, through all the types of things that churches are doing and these celebrity pastors are doing to make themselves filthy rich. So nobody should become a millionaire through teaching and preaching the Bible. However, they also shouldn't be starved to death. They shouldn't be caused to live in the poorhouse and as a pauper because they're giving themselves to the ministry of the word. They need to have a fair, decent, comfortable living, right? So that they can provide for the needs of their wife, of their children, of their estate. They can save something up for retirement so they can leave an inheritance to their children, right? We shouldn't expect them to live some substandard level of living while everyone else is living a luxurious life. This shouldn't be the case. Nor should they live a luxurious life while everyone else is having some substandard level of living. But rather, a fair, comfortable, decent living, but not get-rich living. Right? That's the way it should be, so that they're not having to be entangled in secular matters. Right? If he's giving a bare minimum subsistence, then he's going to have to go out and get a, a job on the side. He's going to have to go and get entangled in these things, and those are going to monopolize his time so that he's not able to dedicate his time to the preaching and teaching of the Word of God. So he shouldn't be entangled in these things, nor should the church compel him to be entangled in these things by being miserly toward the pastor. And typically, actually, I don't know about in the other churches, everything I know is from the Baptist perspective because that's what I grew up in. The Baptist churches want to starve their pastors to death. This is typically the case in the Baptist churches. Now, the executives in the BGCO, in the SBC, at the seminaries, they get salaries of $250,000, $400,000 a year, and the churches don't have a problem doling the money out to them. But then their own local pastor, who is actually there ministering to them, watching over their soul, they barely give them anything, right? And they starve them to death so that they move around from here to there. And I think most of the churches do that on purpose. So anyway, it shouldn't be that way. I don't know about the Pentecostal churches or whatever other church anyone comes from. You can inform me afterwards. Okay, so comfortable living, so they're not entangled in secular matters, and so they can show hospitality. Isn't that one of the duties of the elder, one of the qualifications? They have to be hospitable. Well, if you're hospitable, doesn't that entail having people into your house, feeding them, housing them, whatever they need while they're there? Right? You can't have people into your house and then expect them to pay for their own food. That's not hospitality. Right? That's a hotel or a bed and breakfast. That's a business. No, it's not supposed to be like that. So if someone is coming, then the pastor needs to be the one that's caring for them, that's meeting their needs, that's feeding them. And they should be doing this regularly. Well, and when they do that, how are they going to be able to do that if they have a meager existence? They're not going to be able to show hospitality because they're not going to have the means to do so. So they need to be given what they need so that they can fulfill the ministry. Okay, 2 Timothy chapter 2.
and verse 1. 2 Timothy 2, verse 1. It says, You therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. The things which you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Suffer hardship with me as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier in active service entangles himself in the affairs of everyday life, so that he may please the one who enlisted him as a soldier. Also, if anyone competes as an athlete, he does not win the prize unless he competes according to the rules. The hard-working farmer ought to be the first to receive his share of the crops. Consider what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. So there, the soldier who is enlisted does not entangle himself in the affairs of everyday life because he has to please the one who enlisted him. He has to please his superior, whoever is over him. And this is how it is for the minister. He's not to be entangled in the affairs of everyday life, right? As others are compelled to do because they have to go to work. They have to go and do those things. He's to work in the ministry. That is what he is supposed to do. Okay, also, 1 Timothy chapter 3. First Timothy 3, verse 1, says, It is a trustworthy statement. If any man aspires to the office of overseer, it is a fine work he desires to do. An overseer, then, must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, temperate, prudent, respectable, hospitable, able to teach. So they are hospitable. This is one of the requirements of the overseer. And for him to be a hospitable, he has to have some means of support so that he can then be generous and show hospitality to those who come into his home. Then lastly, this is required by the law of nature and by the explicit command of our Lord Jesus, who has ordained that those who preach the gospel should earn their living by the gospel. So this principle is taught that the worker is worthy, the laborer is worthy of his wages, right? That those who work in the ministry, those who work at preaching the gospel, should get their living from the gospel, right? This is required both by the law of nature and also the explicit command of our Lord Jesus Christ. So we have two bases for understanding this, nature and also the explicit command of our Lord Jesus Christ so then it would be inexcusable, inexcusable for a church not to know and understand these things. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, and we'll pick up in verse 1. 1 Corinthians 9 verse 1 says, Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are you not my work in the Lord? If to others I am not an apostle, at least I am to you. For you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. My defense to those who examine me is this. Do we not have a right to eat and drink? Do we not have a right to take along a believing wife, even as the rest of the apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? Or do only Barnabas and I, have a, uh, or, or do only Barnabas and I not have a right to refrain from working? Who at any time serves as a soldier at his own expense? 
Who plants a vineyard and does not eat the fruit of it? Who tends a flock and does not use the milk of the flock? I am not speaking these things according to human judgment, am I? Or does not the law also say these things? For it is written in the law of Moses, You shall not muzzle the ox while he is threshing. God is not concerned about oxen, is he? Or is he speaking altogether for our sake? Yes, for our sake, it is written, because the plowman ought to plow in hope and the thresher to thresh in hope of sharing the crops. If we sowed spiritual things in you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? If others share the right over you, do not we even more? Nevertheless, we do not use this right, but we endure all things so that we will cause no hindrance to the gospel of Christ. Do you not know that those who perform sacred services eat the food of the temple, and those who attend regularly to the altar have their share from the altar? So also the Lord directed that those who proclaim the gospel to get their living from the gospel. So there you have the two arguments. One is the argument from nature that this is commonly believed, commonly known. Everyone knows and understands these things. No soldier serves at his own expense. No one plants a vineyard and doesn't get some of the fruit of it. No one tends the flock and doesn't get some reward or benefit from the work of tending to the flock. And the law says these things. Moses wrote, do not muzzle the ox while it is threshing. Is God concerned about oxen? Well, he is, but not ultimately about oxen. So yes, it is a principle that is true for animals, but are animals more important than people? Now, don't ask people in California that, because they'll tell you that animals are more important than people, but the Bible tells us, no. In terms of rank, of creation, people are more important than animals. Well, if God is so concerned about animals that he's establishing this truth that an animal should not work without getting a reward for their labor, then shouldn't we know from the lesser to the greater that a man should not work without getting some reward for his labor? Is God concerned about oxen? No. Who's he concerned about? He says, us. He's concerned about us. He's speaking for our sake. The plowman ought to plow in hope. The thresher threshes in hope, right? The plowman plows in hope that he's going to get something, that he's worked, he's worked hard, and there's going to be a reward for his labor. The thresher threshes in the hope that there's going to be some reward, some benefit to his labor. And that's why he says, if we have sowed spiritual things in you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? Which is greater, the spiritual or the material? The spiritual. You've received the spiritual is what he's saying, so then shouldn't you reciprocate with the material? That's the argument that he's making here. Then he goes on to those who work in the temple. Those who worked in the temple, in the Old Testament, they got their food from the temple. Those who worked at the altar got a share of what went on to the altar. God established these things in the way that they were to perform them. So also, he says, the Lord has directed that those who proclaim the gospel get their living from the gospel. And who is the one that directed this? The Lord. The Lord Jesus Christ. That's what they're saying here. It's both law of nature. You could say law of nature, law of Moses, explicit command of our Lord Jesus Christ. You have three levels of obvious instruction there 
by which we ought to know and understand these things. So those who labor in preaching and teaching then should receive their living through the preaching and teaching of the Word of God. And this is right. It's the best thing. It's right in terms of justice, but it also is good. It's good for them and it's good for who else? It's good for everyone else as well. Because then they're going to have the time to devote themselves to preaching and teaching, to study, to know the Bible, to do what is necessary, to meet with people, to pray for people, for the souls of men, for our eternal salvation. So this is why those things ought to be. Okay, so we'll stop there today, and we'll pray, and then we will be dismissed. And remember, we've got to be out of here uh, at least by 3 o'clock, okay? All right, let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, and Lord, we thank you that you have given, Lord, to your church, uh, Lord, preachers and teachers, Lord, those who you have equipped, Lord, to teach the word of God, Lord, to be shepherds and overseers over the souls of your flock, and Lord, that this is for, for our good, Lord, for our salvation, Lord, for the good of our families. And so, Father, we pray that we would not have a sour attitude or disposition toward the ministry of the Word. Lord, this is commonly the case in many churches that the people hate their ministers because the ministers are the ones that are preaching against their sin. But, Lord, we don't want that to be the case with us. Lord, we want to, Lord, see and and love and cherish those who deliver the Word of God to us. Lord, to respect and to honor them, and Lord, to support and maintain them in whatever ways that we can. So, Lord, we pray that ultimately this would show our love for you, our love for your word, Lord, our love for the church and what you have established here within our midst. Lord, as well, we do pray that, Lord, you would raise up among us, Lord, godly men who can serve as both elders and deacons, Lord, that you would make this obvious and plain to us. Lord, as well, for future generations, Lord, we see some of our young ones, our little ones that are here. Lord, we pray that in due time you would raise some of them up, Lord, who might serve in the ministry, Lord, as ministers of your word, or who might serve as deacons in your church, Lord, to serve and to meet and to care for the needs of others. So, Lord, whatever we need, Lord, in order to be what we need to be in Christ, Lord, to be whole and equipped. Lord, we pray that you would provide that for us and that, Lord, you would help us to continue to raise up godly families and that, Lord, your word would have its way among us and that it would go out in power. So, Lord, be with us as we go from here today. We pray that you give us safety as we travel home. Lord, as well, that you would bless us this week. Help us to be obedient to you, Lord, to do your will. And we pray that you would bring us back again together Wednesday, Lord, that we might study your word again. And it is in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.